With the headlines in newspapers and cover stories of magazines full of doom and gloom about the economy, it's well for us to recall the counsel which we as a Church have heard for years. That counsel has included such things as obtaining a year's supply of food, staying out of debt, and preparing for employment. Following this counsel has meant financial salvation to many who have found themselves unemployed during the past year. The Lord has commanded us to remain self-sufficient, thus retaining our independence. He has said, Behold, this is the preparation wherewith I prepare you, and the foundation, and the ensample which I give unto you, whereby you may accomplish the commandments which are given you, that through my providence, notwithstanding the tribulation which shall descend upon you, that the Church may stand independent above all other creatures beneath the celestial world. How are we to stand independent above all other creatures beneath the celestial world? In 1944, Elder Albert E. Bowen had some thoughts on this scripture which struck a familiar chord in my heart. He said, quote, The only way the Church can stand independent is for its members to stand independent. For the Church is its members. It is not possible to conceive of an independent Church made up of dependent members. Members who are under the inescapable obligation of dependency. The Lord must want and intend that His people shall be free of constraint, whether enforceable or only arising out of the bindings of conscience. It is not believed that any person or people can live from gratuities rely upon them for means of subsistence, and remain wholly free in thought, motive, and action. History seems to record no such instance. That is why the Church is concerned that its members who have physical and mental capacity to do so shall render service commensurate with their capacities for aid extended. That is why the Church is not satisfied with any system which leaves able people permanently dependent and insists on the contrary that the true function and office of giving is to help people into a position where they can help themselves and thus be free. Hesitancy to extend basic welfare principles to this previously unthought-of application arises, no doubt out of a natural human reluctance to forego an apparent benefit which may be had for the taking and ostensibly without price, though this latter is a delusion since no one ever gets something for nothing. The recipient always pays, if not in money, then in forfeiture of some invaluable right or freedom. The Church can be no more independent than the collective independence of its individual members. We fear that some may misunderstand the intent of the resources of the welfare program of the Church and fall into a false sense of security that will lead to reduced efforts toward self-sufficiency. It is not financially possible, nor is it sound in principle that the Church amass the assets necessary to take care of the members of the Church who are physically able to work. All the efforts of the welfare program are directed to helping people become self-sufficient. The exception to this, of course, are those who cannot take care of themselves. The program provides a brief temporary port in the storm for the able-bodied and is not meant to be a permanent home. The welfare program of the Church does not represent independence to the Church. 
but is a means toward the end of making individuals independent. For the Church as an organization to be independent, it would basically have to duplicate the economy of the individual members. This is neither practical, possible, or prudent. We've all been taught that dependence on the government is not good. Neither is dependence on the Church. That principle runs as deep as free agency itself. In order to become independent, members must be employed. The economy today is not conducive to obtaining employment with ease. Here are some of the problems with which we are faced. Last year in the United States, there were 1.1 million new homes or apartments started. This was the lowest number since 1946. The first few months of this year show signs of being even more challenging. Mortgage interest rates have climbed from 9% in 1977 to over 17% in recent months. Automobile sales were the lowest they've been in 20 years. Losses of the United States automakers have been astronomical. Companies who make automakers such auto supplies as steel companies are beginning to feel the seriousness of the situation. The result of these conditions is a large increase in unemployment. Currently, unemployment is very close to 9 percent, and many economists project it will go even higher before there is a substantial reduction. This 9 percent unemployment equates to nine and one-half million Americans being out of work. These unemployment problems are not limited to the United States. The unemployment rate is 8.6 percent in Canada and 9 percent in Europe. In other countries, such as South America, great numbers of people are without work. These economically turbulent times should not come as a shock to members of the Church who have been listening. Neither should they be devastating to those who have followed the counsel which they have heard. As scriptures tell us, we will have this and much more, while at the same time whispering, Peace be still. If ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. And all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Therefore, at this time of economic difficulty, let us rejoice in the fact that we have the restored gospel which gives perspective to the ups and downs in life. Let troubled times serve as a catalyst for introspection and soul-searching and followed by increased spirituality. We need to be more sensitive to those around us who may be affected more than ourselves and help each other through this valley. As a people, we should rise to the challenge and grow from it. We need to proceed with optimism and not fall victims to the debilitating effects of developing negative doomsday attitudes. I would like to direct the balance of my remarks to a program which will have a great impact on helping us meet today's challenges. I speak of the Church Employment System. This is not a new program, but as so often the case, it is not appreciated or understood until such times as it is dearly needed. Priesthood leaders will receive a copy of the Church Employment System Guidebook, which details the workings of the system. It will also be taught in the various councils of the Church. The objectives of the Church Employment System are, one, to help individuals find gainful employment by collecting and quickly sharing job information from members and others in the community. 
Two, to provide counseling and improved opportunities for those in need of better employment or rehabilitation. And three, to help parents through priesthood, quorums, and relief society to counsel family members about employment and career planning. To help coordinate this effort, ward and stake employment specialists are called. Careful thought should be given to the person selected as employment specialist. You bishops know the amount of time and energy you are directing to problems either directly or indirectly related to unemployment. Let this employment specialist serve as a resource in helping you solve some of these problems. We would encourage every ward and stake to have qualified employment specialists called in the near future. At the request of local priesthood leaders and as approved by the Executive Administrator and General Welfare Services Committee, an employment center may be set up. The objectives of employment centers are to 1. Coordinate job opportunities. 2. Place applicants who are not placed at the ward level. 3. At the invitation of priesthood leaders, train stake and ward specialists. And 4. Coordinate job solicitation in the business community. Let us emphasize that the success of the employment program of the Church lies with the individual members. National studies have shown that 80 percent of all job opportunities are filled by word of mouth, as opposed to employment services, newspapers, or other types of advertising. If 10 percent of our members are unemployed, 90 percent of our members are employed. It is through the employed members of the Church that job opportunities are initially uncovered. We urge each of you who do have jobs to be on the lookout for openings which can be filled by members of your ward who are out of work. In a time when jobs are scarce, priesthood participation is absolutely vital. Let's not underestimate the strength of our position. As employment center managers contact businesses, they have learned that, in general, members of the Church enjoy a good reputation as employees. Indeed, any member who is living what he has been taught represents an ideal employee. And during times of heavy unemployment, employers can be very selective in the people who are employed. We feel our members are prime candidates for the limited jobs available at this time. We encourage members of quorums to work with those who are unemployed and help them with skills in looking for employment. Many people who are unemployed now are unemployed for the first time. They may need additional help in such things as writing an adequate resume and in being effective in job interviews. Resources of the quorum can do much to help members with proper techniques when applying for a job. Another area where quorums and employment specialists can be of much help is underemployment. Many of our employed members live in constant fear of losing their jobs. Others are not being fulfilled by the job which they have. Therefore, another purpose of this program is in upgrading employment. We counsel bishops to use ward employment specialists in coordinating temporary job opportunities for those who are out of work and who are receiving assistance. We can do much more in the area of providing an opportunity for people to work for that which they receive while they are temporarily unemployed. This program is one which can be applied in most countries. Obviously, nothing should be done which is contrary to the laws of the land in which you live. It is our feeling that in light of today's economy and in view of our objective to remain independent, 
The employment program has much to offer. No one can see the deterioration which takes place in a man's spirit when he is unemployed without wanting to do something to help. It is desirable not only to relieve human distress but to prevent and eliminate its causes. Progress can be made with the generous use of talents, time, and resources of many individuals. The Church employment system allows the 90% of the Church who are employed to help the 10% who are unemployed. May we be committed and involved in this modern-day response to the Savior's command, Love one another as I have loved you. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some fifty years ago, when the Church launched its welfare program, President Grant stated, as was quoted by the former speaker, our primary purpose was to set up, insofar as it might be possible, a system under which the curse of idleness would be done away with, the evils of a dole abolished, and independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect once more established amongst our people. The aim of the Church is to help people to help themselves. Work is to be re-enthroned as the ruling principle of the lives of our people. End of that quote. We're, we've all heard that quoted many times, but do we fully understand its significance? Bishops, are any of your people idle? Are all of your members independent, industrious, thrifty, and do they all have self-respect? Are any members receiving assistance as a dole? Are we helping our members to help themselves, or are we just taking care of the people? Finally, do our members understand the significance of work? If you don't feel good about these answers, you will understand why we keep emphasizing President Grant's statement I remember that when my brother was called to be a stake president, he came to me and said, uh, quote, Now tell me all about this welfare program. He asked many questions. After uh, reminding him of them, I said, You have been in dozens of meetings where I have answered all of these questions, haven't you? He answered, yes, but I'm sure that's true, but I wasn't a state president then. <laughs> I believe the attention many of us pay to gospel principles 
fluctuates as our circumstances in life change. However, the principles remain constant and are true whether or not we live up to them. The consequences of not living these principles also remain constant. A few years ago, I read a lengthy book dealing with the reasons for the fall of the human of the Roman Empire. That fall in large measure was due to the purchasing of votes with unearned benefits such as entertainments, circuses and food. The government's actions built up in the people and expectation and the demand which eventually could only be kept down by the establishment of a dictatorship. Many of the members live in countries where this history has repeated itself. In the United States, our treasured American work ethic is wanting and the purchasing of votes with unearned benefits is dangerously common. They used to tell the story when I first came under President Lee's influence in the welfare program about a man who they could not get to work. He wanted to be taken care of. The church or government, so he thought, owed him a living because he had paid his tithing and taxes. He did not have any, anything to eat and refused to labor to care for himself. But out of desperation and disgust, they decided they might as well take him to the cemetery. Uh, and on the way, one man said, we can't do this. I have some corn I will give to him. So they explained this to the man, and he said, is it husk? They said, no. He said, well, then, drive on. This, no, this would not be humorous if it were so close to the truth. You can't save a man who has such an attitude and a nation made up of men and women with similar attitudes is vulnerable to the problems which lead to, led to the fall of Rome. The saddest day of a person's life is when he sits down to work out a means whereby he can live without his own effort. One of the most demeaning things a government can do is to teach people that the government owes them a living. By contrast, ever since the church was organized, it has encouraged its members to maintain their own economic independence and to work for what they get to produce that which they consume. 
I thought it might be helpful to remember what the Church has done since its inception to give life to the principle stated so well by President Grant. Church welfare principles have always been with us. Although President Grant's statement came in 1936, you will note that he said independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect should be once more established. Also note that he said work should be reinstated, not established. If time permitted, we could begin when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden and found the earth cursed for their sake. We could trace these principles through biblical and Book of Mormon times. However, in the interest of time, we will limit our comments to a few things done in this the last dispensation. Within a year after organization of the Church, the Lord had revealed his economic system, and it was practiced in Missouri. The first welfare program of this dispensation was the United Order, under which a person consecrated all that he had to the to the church and received back that which necessary was necessary to provide for his family according to their wants and needs. The portion of the property retained by the church was used in one of the two ways. First, if a person was able-bodied, he was given the means whereby he could earn a living. Second, if a person was incapable of working, his needs were met. As individuals worked in their various jobs, the surplus generated over and above the needs of their family was turned into the church. This surplus was also used to give more people jobs or to take care of the needy. As the saints arrived in Missouri, many were destitute. The program provided these people with the opportunity to work and earn their own living. They were not given a handout, but they were given a job. The United Order was discontinued by commandment in 1834, but its basic principles were practiced in Nauvoo. For example, in an orderly emigration, some 5,000 converts came to Nauvoo from Great Britain. The more wealthy 
members gave of their means to assist the poor in both their transportation to America and in helping them obtain work after they arrived. The economy of Nauvoo was based primarily on ag agriculture and construction. The largest construction project was the Nauvoo Temple, which provided jobs for many of its members. One traveler is quoted as saying, there was no pauperism in Nauvoo because those without substance were provided with work by the church. The church also provided town lots to those people unable to buy one for themselves. Many Nauvoo residents were able to provide the largest part of their basic necessities from their own plots, which normally were one acre in size. They cultivated extensive gardens and often kept chickens, a milk cow, and several pigs, which they could get the, the exchange for several days' work. The whole objective behind giving help in Nauvoo was to enable people to be self-sustaining as soon as possible by provisions and avenue for work was production. The providing an avenue for work and production. After away, uh, arriving in Salt Lake City with Brigham Young, the church became completely responsible for its own economy since they were isolated from the others, from any other society. There was no room here for the idler because survival literally depended on work. Brigham Young's philosophy regarding work and employment can be seen by his statement made in August of 1860. The reason we have no poor who are able to work is because we plan to set every person to work at some profitable employment and teach them to maintain themselves if a person is not able to care for himself he will take we will take care of him if a bishop will act uh, to the extent of his calling and office and magnify it there will not be one individual in this ward that is not employed to the best of advantage. As conditions changed, so did the program. In, by 1880, the relatively independent economic kingdom had to be uh, abandoned as Utah became nationalized. The church sold many of its economic enterprises and the leaders ceased to direct 
the economic affairs of church members. Utah had become an integral part of the national economy. Hence, the dawning of a new era in the manner in which the church could help employ its members. It is interesting to note that just as the church became dependent on the national on the nation for its economy, the nation entered the depression of the 1890s. During the depression, the church established employment bureaus to aid its members in finding employment. Costly efforts were also made to bolster the economy. Assistance was given to such industries as sugar, salt, and coal. Throughout the early 1900s, the church efforts regarding work and employment were directed to helping members find jobs. For example, in the 1920s, bishops were charged with responsibility of finding employment for needy ward members. They were instructed to appoint a special person within each ward to be concerned with employment problems and uh, discussed this problem in they discussed this problem in their quorum meetings. Those who could not take care of themselves were given appropriate assistance. However, the emphasis was always on self-sufficiency. When the depression of the 1930s came, the members of the church found themselves in a situation altogether different. There were no jobs, and many people were out of work. The government stepped in to alleviate this problem, but some things that were done promoted idleness because there was a dole involved. It was in this climate that President Grant announced the welfare program for that day. A model of production projects was announced six months earlier in a letter dated April the 21st, 1936, to the state presidents and bishops, which stated in part, the following is a suggestive outline for projects in each ward in the church in the beet-growing districts of Utah and Idaho to take care of the unemployed members of the church. The bishopric of each ward is requested to select and secure the 100 or more acres of land suitable for sugar beets. The bishopric could divide up the acreage 
according to the size of a needy family, and the family can do the handiwork, namely the thinning, the hoeing, the irrigating, keeping the beach clean, the pulling and topping, and loading the same into the wagon of the, at, at the time of harvesting. The laborers should receive an advance payment on the, uh, at the time of thinning, hoeing, irrigating, and when the work is done so that they may be able to live during the summer while the crop is growing. If this unemployment is to be solved, it must be done by the people undertaking together and helping each other to find employment. And if the, the start is made this season, more preparation can be made for another season and the project ex extended so that it will become a material benefit and uh, absorb a large percentage of the unemployed. Once again, the purpose of this program was to help people to help themselves and to get them actively involved in work or production. Since that time, many programs have been followed, a few of which are the following. Deseret Industries was set up to employ the unemployable as well as supply clothing and household goods at a low cost as organizations were created to make small character loans to men and women who could not borrow from financial institutions. An agricultural committee was set up whose business it was to investigate what, if anything, the church could wi widely undertake to do to, in setting up corporations both for production and uh, marketing. In each case, the objective of the has been to help people help themselves. It is hoped that this illustration will help implant in our minds and hearts the fact that the welfare program has been with us from the beginning. Programs must be modified to fit circumstances prevailing at the time, but the principles and objectives are unchanging. We have to be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. Sometimes it is possible to get so wrapped up in a program we forget the objective. We must be made alert and creative, more alert and creative in accomplishing the objective of making our people independent and self-sustaining. Today we are 
and international church, and problems vary in our homelands. This means that different programs may be necessary in different countries. But the primary purpose, as stated by President Grant in the beginning of the welfare program, is universal. The theme of this welfare session has been work and employment. The priesthood-based employment system of the Church is one program which can benefit most, if not all countries. We invite you members of quorums who are blessed with employment to participate in the sanctifying effort of helping others who are in need of employment find work. In most cases where it is necessary to provide temporary assistance to those who are able-bodied, we we challenge bishops and other priesthood leaders anew to find appropriate services for them to perform in order that pride and self-respect may remain intact. God bless us all with a keen understanding of the foundation upon which all these activities are built. We are anxious to make our people independent, industrious, and self-sufficient. We want to accomplish this in a way which will be sanctifying to the giver as well as the receiver when we can understand this principle our current welfare activities will take on more meaning and any changes or additional programs required for today's society can be revealed. There is a reoccurring theme in Revelations having to do with learning. And from the beginning, Church leaders have counseled us to get all of the education and we can as a preparation for and as an improvement of our careers. For example, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek ye learning even by study and also by faith. Learning is to be accompanied by faith. As the Book of Mormon teaches us, learning is good if we hearken unto the counsels of God. There is one thought that must come at the very beginning of a discussion on occupations and careers in order to establish it as preeminent, and it is this. Do not ever belittle anyone, including yourself, nor count them or you a failure if your livelihood has been modest. Do not ever look down on those who labor in 
occupations of lower income. There is great dignity and worth in any honest occupation. Do not use the word menial for any labor that improves the world or the people who live in it. There is no shame in any honorable work, and the principle of faith, which the Lord connected with learning, is precious above the technologies of man. There will be many who struggle through life with small ownership and low income who discover, because they have been decent, the meaning of the scripture, He who is the greatest among you, let him be the least and the servant of all. While schooling and education generally go together, there are kinds of wisdom which are not generally taught in school classrooms. To illustrate, I begin with the Old Testament record of Naaman, who, as the commander of the armies of Syria, had given deliverance to his country. He became a leper, and the king of Syria feared he would die. An Israelite slave girl who served the queen of Syria spoke of prophets in Israel who had the power to heal. The king of Syria sent a message to the king of Israel, saying, I have sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. The king of Israel suspected a plot and complained, He seeketh a quarrel against me. Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Elisha the prophet heard of the king's distress, and he sent to the king, saying, let him come now to me. Elisha would heal Naaman, and he told why, that he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. When Naaman was near, Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and thou shalt be clean. Naaman was angry. There were rivers of plenty in Syria as good, he thought, as the Jordan. He had expected Elisha to perform some impressive ceremony, like clapping his hands upon him, and he, quote, turned away in a rage. But one of his servants—it seems there's always a servant—courageously chastised the general and said, If the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? Humbled by his servant, Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the sayings of the man of God, and he was clean. Human nature hasn't changed over the years. Even today, some of us expect to be bidden to do some great things in order to receive the blessings of the Lord. When we receive ordinary counsel on ordinary things, there is disappointment, and, like Naaman, we turn away. Let me give you a modern-day example. President Kimball has been president of the Church for eight years. In virtually every conference sermon, he's included at least a sentence telling us to clean up, paint up, and fix up our property. Many of us have paid little attention to the counsel. Question, why would a prophet tell us to do that? 
Has he no great prophecies to utter? But is that not a form of prophecy? For has he not said to us over and over again, Take care of your material possessions, for the day will come when they will be difficult, if not impossible, to replace. Already there is a fulfillment. Families who might have afforded a home when first he spoke now despair of getting one. For some reason, we expect to hear, particularly in welfare sessions, some ominous great predictions of calamities to come. Instead, we hear quiet counsel on ordinary things which, if followed, will protect us in times of great calamity. It was Alma the prophet who said, By small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means in many instances doth confound the wise. Now all of this was to prepare you for the fact that the counsel I will give you may seem ordinary, even trivial to some of you, but it will be consistent with the doctrines and principles announced by the First Presidency when the welfare program was first introduced. Quote, Our primary purpose is to set up, insofar as possible, a system under which the curse of idleness would be done away with, the evils of the dole abolished, and independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect be once more established amongst our people. The aim of the Church is to help people to help themselves. Work is to be re-enthroned as a ruling principle in the lives of our Church membership. That emphasis on self-reliance suggests something about education. We cannot expect the Church to assume responsibility for the schooling of all of us. One of the questions most often asked of general authorities as we travel usually begins in this way. Why doesn't the Church? And then there follows a description of some worthy project which would, if it should succeed, bring credit to the Church and perhaps benefit many people. For example, why doesn't the Church establish schools to prepare members for financial security? Some years ago, I was near our front gate splitting rails for a fence. A young man came to make a delivery. He had recently returned from overseas combat duty. He had falsified his age and left school to join the Marines. When I asked him about his future plans, he didn't know. Jobs were scarce. He had no skills to offer. <clears throat> I counseled him to go back to high school and get his diploma. He thought he couldn't do that. He was too old now. If you do it, I told him, you probably will not exactly fit in and the students might well call you the old man or grandpa. But you faced an enemy in combat. Surely you've got the courage to face that. The lesson is this. I only spent ten minutes with him sitting on a log by our front gate. I did not build a school nor ask the Church to build one. I did not pay his tuition or prepare his lessons. <clears throat> what he needed was some direction some counsel, some encouragement, and some vision. In this case, he took the counsel and returned to school. Now he has a family and an occupation. 
I only gave him vision and encouragement. It does not take additional Church budget to do that. That is the responsible role of every priesthood leader in counseling members on careers. We must help people to help themselves. Several years ago, a certain country was emerging from a long period of political and economic distress. And there was a need for skilled workers of many kinds. Some of our local leaders, sensing the need, conceived the idea of establishing vocational schools in our chapels to train the brethren in their skills. They could then upgrade themselves in their employment. <clears throat> it was a very appealing idea. They pointed out that the money expended would be justified on the basis that these brethren would return in ties more than the cost of the program. They were greatly disappointed when the brethren did not approve their idea. There were several things they had not considered. The most important was that vocational training was already available to those who really looked for it. Classes to train new employees and to upgrade the experienced ones were already offered by business and industry and by their government. What our brethren needed most was counsel and encouragement to take advantage of opportunities that were already available. We ourselves are responsible to seek out and take advantage of every opportunity to improve ourselves. Now, there are some things <clears throat> that the Church must do, for we are commanded to do them. We must preach the gospel. We must build temples. We must perfect the saints. These things others cannot do. The many other good things which are not central to the mission of the Church must take second place. For we do not have the resources to do all that is worth doing, however worthy it may be. While we cannot build schools for everyone, there is a most important contribution the Church can make to our careers, one that is central to the mission of the Church, and that is to teach moral and spiritual values. There are ordinary virtues which influence our careers even more than technical training. Among them are these integrity, dependability, courtesy, respect for others, respect for property. Let me illustrate one or two of these. It is likely that our children and yours, for the first part of their married life at least, will live in rented apartments. I had a conversation with a state president who owns a large number of apartments which he rents to middle-income families. As he showed them to me, he described the abuse of his property, not just the normal wear and tear, but outright abuse bordering on vandalism. Such conduct is unworthy of a Latter-day Saint. We should know better than that. We should be willing to drive a nail or set a screw in a hinge if it's needed. <clears throat> Our people should regard an apartment as their home and keep it inviting and clean and in good repair. Has not the Prophet told us to do it? When they leave an apartment, it should be clean and essentially ready for the next tenant. Now, <clears throat> what has this got to do with the career? Surely you can see the transfer of learning from our homes to our work. 
Years ago, my father, as a young married man with several children, went nervously into the bank in Brigham City to ask for a loan to start in business. He was asked about collateral. He had none beyond his willingness to work and some mechanical aptitude. The banker, in turning down his request, happened to ask Father where he lived. In the old box house on First West was the answer. The banker passed that corner on the way to work. He'd watched the transformation in the yard. He'd wondered who lived there and admired what they were doing. Father got the loan to start in business on the strength of the flowers that Mother had planted in the yard of a very modest Dobie house they were renting. <clears throat> we have raised a large family on a very modest income, <clears throat> and it's likely that our children are going to have the same privilege. In order to prepare them, we've trained them to do ordinary necessary things as part of their preparation for their careers. For instance, we've maintained an area, sometimes at the corner of a basement room, where there's a workbench where projects could be left. There can be some paint or little sawdust on the floor without a problem. In spite of continuous cleanup, this area is perpetually untidy, but with a purpose. We followed another practice. Each Christmas, at least one of the presents for the boys has been a hand tool. When they were old enough, a good metal toolbox was included. When each has left home, he's had his own set of tools and some knowledge of how to use them. He can tune up a car or drive a nail or turn a screw or replace a plug or a faucet washer. The girls, in turn, have learned to cook and to sew, and each is left home with a sewing machine. This training is doubly important, first in frugal living at home and then on their value as an employee. They would, we hoped, be not only good, but good for something. Now, I have an idea that some soul will be very upset with us for not providing the boys with a sewing machine and the girls with a box of tools as well. <laughs> so <clears throat> I hasten to explain that our boys can cook enough to survive a mission, and they can sew on a button. The girls, in turn, can change a faucet washer and drive a nail. Both of them can type and even change the tire on a car. While many, many occupations suit a man or a woman equally well, I, for one, have grave concern over the growing trend for both men and women to choose careers which, in some respects, are against their very natures. We have tried to prepare our boys for manly work and our girls for work that would suit the opportunities that womanhood will bring them. In defense of our doing that, I can only observe that in this Church we are not exempt from using common sense. There are so few nowadays who are really willing to work. We must train our children and ourselves to give in work the equivalent of the pay we receive and perhaps just a little extra. There are so few who will come a bit early to get organized for the day or stay a minute after to tidy up the workbench or the desk for tomorrow's work. The attitude that demands compensation and benefits in excess of the value of labor 
has come near destroying the economy of the world. Now, however, many workers quite willingly accept reductions in pay just to keep their jobs. That spirit of doing a little extra would have prevented the crisis had it been evident earlier. Family responsibilities and tight budgets sometimes prevent us from obtaining all the schooling we desire. We can, however, improve ourselves. The only tuition required is the time it takes, the work required, the desire to build into our lives the ordinary virtue so much in demand and so short in supply. Now, I hope I have not disappointed too many of you by not presenting some great thing for you to do, some elaborate formula for career planning, rather than such ordinary things, so obvious, so close to us, that they are often overlooked. There is a formula. The Lord said, Verily I say unto you that every man who is obliged <coughs> to provide for his own family, let him provide, and he shall in no wise lose his crown, and let him labor in the Church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the formula for success. Every principle of the gospel, when lived, has a positive influence over your choice of an occupation and on what you will achieve. The counsel to labor in the Church has great value. Living the gospel will give you a perspective and an inspiration that will see you successful, however ordinary your work may be or however ordinary your life may seem to others. God bless the members of this Church that they can be happy with who they are and where they are, that they can improve themselves. We pray that God will bless those who are struggling now with unemployment, with the loss of their employment, with the fear of that loss. May He bless us that we can build into our lives those principles of self-reliance and integrity that have been part of the gospel from the very beginning. For the gospel is true. Of this I bear witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.